What is up, guys? And this is Why Theology. My name is KJ, short for Khalil Jones. And today we're back with our another episode. This will actually be episode one, referring back to what is Reformed Theology. And so today we're going to be talking about Calvinism or what is also known as TULIP. Now, TULIP, it is um many it's referred by many called the the doctrines of grace and that's because it's an acronym short for the doctrines of grace basically teaches about god's sovereign grace and his um how he's sovereign in short and so today we're going to be talking about this and to be specific i'm gonna be contrasting of course i'm gonna be teaching what john calvin taught about this but what does the bible say and specifically we're going to be teaching Tulip straight through the mouth of Jesus Christ himself, mainly in the book of John. And so you have on one side what John Calvin taught and then on the other side what the Lord Christ Jesus taught himself. And so stay tuned. We're diving into this. So get ready. What a time to be alive right now, especially with sports. I know we got a whole pandemic, crazy presidential election going on. I think the president actually got coronavirus. I'm not sure about his updated status as of right now, but I, last time I checked, he had coronavirus. and That's kind of crazy, but we definitely should be praying for our leaders. I know many of you guys probably don't like Trump, but the Bible says we should be praying for our leaders because if you have the coronavirus, I'm sure you will want somebody in your church praying for you, right? And so... Definitely praying for that man. I'm not saying everything he does is good or the correct, or he's the fact, or if he's a Christian, but we definitely should be praying for him. So, back to what I mentioned, um, what a time to be alive for the sports world because if you're not a Green Bay fan, you need to be one because we're four and zero. Oh. And so last year we started off four and zero, oh, but this year is definitely different because my team we're leading number one in scoring offense, and that's without. Our number one receiver, Devontae Adams, and then our second receiver, Alan Lazar, he got hurt. And there's no telling how long he'll be out. He, some kind of core muscle, whatever whatever that means, he's getting surgery, and he's going to be out for a long period of time. And so last night, Aaron Rodgers threw four touchdowns, I think about 300 yards, to like no-name people outside of Aaron Jones and, of course, Jamal Williams, Robert Tunyon. Nobody's ever heard of him. You probably don't, If you're a football fan, you probably have never heard the name Robert Tunyon. And so... Last night, he had three touchdowns. And so I'm kind of pr- surprised about our team this year. Uh, Aaron Rodgers and Matt LaFleur seem to be on the same page. And so I'm happy right now. Hopefully, the NFL did us wrong because we have a bye week this week. And right out of the bye week, probably the game of the week, we play Tom Brady and the Buccaneers. I'm kind of scared. I'm not scared about facing their defense, but I'm scared about the offense because Tom Brady seems to be clicking now. He keeps throwing pick sixes. So maybe he'll throw one to us that week. But... Yeah, and as a Lakers fan, I know before you guys attacked me, I was a Laker fan since the year 2010 when it was like Paul Gasol, Kobe Bryant, Derek Fisher. I think we had Ron Artest as well, and so I've always been a Lakers fan because of Kobe, not because of LeBron. And so now that LeBron is here, it makes it an added bonus because we're probably going to win the chip this year. And so right now, we're up 2-1 to one on the Heat, and uh, I think that was Sunday night, Jimmy Butler went off on the Lakers, and so... I'm a basketball fan first before I'm a Lakers fan because I enjoy watching good basketball. And Jimmy Butler definitely went off on my team. And so I'm just glad that it's a series now because the way it was looking, it was going to be a, 
a sweep. And so I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad Jimmy Butler went off. And so I think Bam's going to come back tonight as well. So maybe that'll be a, a added bonus for them. Surely he can get 10 to 15 points maybe. So that's that. Maybe maybe the series will be over in, in five or six games. I don't know. I don't know. We're going to see. We're going to see, y'all. We're going to see. And so, um, today, um, if you haven't heard the first episode of this series, What is a Formatology, I would highly recommend that you go check that out so you understand why I'm releasing these videos because they refer back to that podcast episode. I think it was my second episode. Yeah. So, definitely go back and look at that. But just to kind of give you a short synopsis, Reform Theology, what is it? It is three C's and five S's. Calvinism, or what is known as Tulip, Covenant Theology, Confessional, and the five solos of the Protestant Reformation. And so today, we're going to be discussing the first C of what is Reform Theology, and that is Calvinism. Now, Calvinism is short, or is also used by many to be referred to Tulip. And so being a Calvinist is more than just believing in TULIP. But today, I just want to focus on TULIP because all the reformers are all Calvinists. And so not every Calvinist is reformed, of course, but all Calvin, all reformers are Calvinists. And so keep in mind, too, when I say Calvinist, I don't mean this is a name or a title that makes you uh, more holier than thou or puts you or some, 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 sort, some sort of class higher than um your other fellow brothers and sisters. Forgive me for that stuttering, y'all. <laughs> I be struggling. But being a Calvinist, a Calvinist doesn't make you more holier than thou. And so you're still just as in need of a savior as anybody else. And so it's just a nickname for short that you are a Christian who affirms the teaching of God's sovereign election and God's sovereign grace. Tulip is basically um, God's sovereign grace. And so today... We're going to be diving into that. Now, another header. Jesus, he was the greatest evangelist who ever lived. He was the greatest pastor, the greatest preacher. Uh, one of my favorite preachers, Steve Lawson, said that um, God had one son and he made him to be a preacher. And this particular preacher, he preached on what is known as Tulip. And so there's also a myth that says we can't teach Tulip to unbelievers. But what I'll be showing you today is the fact that Jesus Christ, he taught Tulip in front of unbelieving crowds. It wasn't just believers that understood this, that he was teaching this to, but it was actually unbelievers. And so we should be following that example as well because Jesus Christ, in fact, preached Tulip. Tulip, again, is just a nickname for the doctrines of grace. And so God being, Jesus being God, of course, he taught on this. And so Calvinism or Tulip, it is a gospel. The hard part, of course, is knowing when to teach this. If you're a pastor, or a preacher that loves this right here, it's kind of hard to figure out when you want to teach this and when is the right time because uh, you basically just preach the Bible, especially if you're preaching the Bible expositionally and you're going to do a text, you get you you eventually get to one of these right here and you can expound upon it. And so today, let's look at it. So to look, acronym is short. Each um letter in this acronym, um, it means something. And so we have TULIP, the T stands for total depravity, total depravity. The U stands for unconditional election. The L stands for unlimited atonement. The I stands for irresistible grace. And the P stands for perseverance of the saints. And so T, total depravity. 
So in summary, this doctrine teaches that basically there's no part of our human nature which is not being affected by the fall, of course, or attaining with sin. And so many people say our intellect or emotions, the will, sometimes our physical well, our physical bodies, it has all been corrupted by the fall. And so I guess another heritage too, so when we speak of a total depravity, it's not that humanity is as bad as possible or that there's no good in any sense that can be done by unbelievers. But when we speak of total depravity, it means that by nature, the fallen state, we are born and unable to do any spiritual good that will please God. We cannot come to God by our own strength. Sometimes people say uh, total depravity is more accurately translated to be total inability. And so what did John Calvin say about this? John Calvin, he says, um, I have said that all parts of the soul were possessed by sin after death, deserted the foundation of righteousness. For not only did a lower appetite seduce him, but unspeakable inapidity accommodated the veil sidle of his mind and pride penetrated the depths of his heart. Paul removes all doubt when he teaches that corruption subsists not in one part only, but that none of the soul remains pure or untouched by the moral disease. For in his discussion of a corrupt nature, Paul not only condemns it and all the impulses of the appetites that are seen, but especially contends the mind is given over to blindness and to the heart, to depravity. And so that's kind of John Calvin on total depravity. So again, what is total depravity? Scripture teaches that our fallen state, we are dead in sins or our trespasses, Ephesians 2, 1. We are slaves to sin, John 8, 34. And unbelievers are said to be darkened in their understanding and alienated from the God, or basically the life of God. And I think that's Ephesians 4. Yeah, Ephesians 4, I think verse 17 or 18. Paul also says that um, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I think that's Romans 8. Somewhere around Romans 8, verse 7 or 8. And then we, you guys know, as a Christian, you should know um, that all our righteous deeds are like 50 rags. And so that's Isaiah 64, verse 6. So what did Jesus say about this teaching? What Did Jesus teach total depravity? And the short answer is yes. And so Jesus, he told his unbelieving audience they must be, or they, he told his unbelieving audience they cannot believe apart from God's doing. And so, of course, as I stated above, um, all humans are born into this world with a curse, the curse of sin. Adam, he imputed or transferred or gave to us this sinful nature. And so it's been said, you don't have to teach the, a baby the word. No, they learn it on their own. And so, yes, I know we have bad parents sometimes. After, well, not sometimes, a lot. <laughs> There's a lot of bad parents out there. And so kids definitely pick up on their habits of their parents. But the fact of just saying no a kid has that already built in inside of them because they're born into sin. They're born already bad. One of my favorite pastors, John MacArthur, he says we're born dead. That's why we sin. R.C. Sproul was a great reformer. He's gone to be with the Lord now since of 2017. He says we don't sin and become sinners. We're sinners. That's why we sin. And so that same is said of you as well. You're born into this world dead in sin. And that's why you're born rejecting Christ. And so Jesus, he taught that people have permission to come to him, but not the ability to come to him apart from Christ's, apart from um, the Holy Spirit's doing. So 
moral inability, it points to spiritual depravity. The reason why people can't come to Christ is because they have, they've been depraved of that. And so, let's look in a couple of places in the Bible where Jesus, he teaches this um, doctrine. The first, John 3, verse 5. John 3, verse 5. I'm reading from the NASB, New American Standard Bible. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The reason why a person needs to be born again is because they're born into the world, totally depraved or totally unable to pick God in his own doing because they have been um, born into the kingdom of darkness, into sin, a slave of sin. If sin were to say you were to say jump, you would say how high because sin is your master when you come into this world. Sin is your God. You don't want nothing to do with God because you hate God. We all hate God coming to this world. I think Isaiah says we've all been like a sheep that's been laid astray. Isaiah's talking about you. You are the sinner in that text. All of us are sinners. We, that's all of us. We are born into this world hating God. Paul says in Romans 3, no one is righteous, not one. And he gets that from Psalms 14. It says the Lord looks upon the whole earth to see if there's any who does good. There is not one. And so the reason why Jesus says you need to be born again is because you cannot enter the kingdom born into sin. Like you must be born, birthed into the kingdom, the kingdom of light, Christ's kingdom. And so Jesus taught Nicodemus that he had to be born again because he was born into sin. Verse 19 and 20 of the same chapter, John 3. Let's look at it real quick. Jesus says, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light to fear that his deeds will be exposed and so jesus he tells us in the gospel of john that he is a light he's the light of the world and so darkness here is talking about evil or sin and you guys know um when the catechism it says uh, what is sin and in summary, it's transgressions against the law. To break God's law is to commit sin. And so you can look all throughout the Bible and see some of God's laws. Primarily, we would refer to sin as the, the moral law, the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, the Ten Sayings. And so a few of those, you should not lie, you should not commit adultery, you should not um, well, murder, honor your father and murder. Um, all these other calls was referred to the Ten Commandments of the moral law. And so there's not one human alive that has kept all ten of those commandments perfectly. We've all broken those. And so the law, it shows us how sinful we really are. It points to our sinful nature. And so Jesus, he says, for everyone who does evil hates the light and has not come to the light because they fear his deeds will be exposed. The reason why people today don't follow Christ is because they're born into sin they're born rejecting and hating the light that is jesus christ because they love their sin more than christ himself why because we are born dead in sin and so jesus is clearly teaching this to nicodemus and nicodemus is an unbeliever at the time let's go over to uh two chapters later john 5 verse 40 
John 5 verse 40. Let's look and see what Jesus says here. I'm going to start in verse 39. And so here Jesus is talking to these Pharisees. You guys know the separated ones. These people believe in keeping the law to get to heaven. And I believe that's that's how many people are in the world. Maybe there's somebody here today thinks about being good. You can go to heaven by keeping God's law, by obeying God's laws in the Bible, by keeping the Ten Commandments. You can be good to get to heaven. Maybe read your Bible to be saved to get to heaven. But listen to what Jesus says. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is these that testify about me and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Let me read verse 40 again. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. So let me give you a contrast. So a person that comes to Jesus has life, right? So that means the opposite. Someone who does not have Jesus does not have life, right? And so these Pharisees were searching the scriptures because they thought by the law of God, by obeying his law, or by reading his law, memorizing his law, they will be saved. But all scripture points to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that was slain for the sins of the world, right? And so Jesus saying the reason why they won't come to him is because they don't have life in them. So anyone born, well, all of us, I should say, all of us born into the world are born with no life in us. So it's possible to be alive physically and be dead spiritually. And one of those is more important because you can be alive, have all the money in the world, all the materialistic things you want in the world and be dead spiritually. When you die, you will face the wrath of God for eternity. And that's terrible, right? And God is just, and he will definitely send you there without hesitation. And so John 6, this is probably one of the more famous verses that everyone knows. That's a Calvinist or who affirms the teaching of God's sovereign grace. John 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Listen to this again. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. No person born into the kingdom of the devil, the kingdom of darkness, born under the curse of sin, imputed to to, uh, us by Adam to receive his sin nature can come to Christ because we're unable to. Again, moral inability points to spiritual depravity and I told you guys total depravity um, we are all born in this state nothing in us is good at all now again it doesn't mean that you can't um, do good acts the theological term we use in the reform world is civic virtue and so many times people can do quote unquote good things but those good things they do is from a sinner even something like helping the poor paying tides, uh, whatever you think is good, uh, driving the correct speed limit. A sinner who's birthed outside the kingdom of heaven, uh, yeah, outside the kingdom of heaven, they only do those things because of selfish interest in the moment. And so it's only a coincidence that they do those good things. So there's nothing good in us at all. Now, it doesn't mean, like I said, that we're as worse as we can be, 
But it does mean that in the free will that we have, we're only choosing to commit sin. And so that's what we mean when we say total depravity. Verse 53, same chapter. Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. And this is, again, if think about food. Food is good, right? But it's only good if you eat it and take it inside yourselves, right? Maybe y'all, maybe some of y'all like just looking at food because y'all weird. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> but in seriousness, though, food is really only good and meant to be taken in, right? And so Jesus is saying, my word, if you don't take it, it's good, but you don't take it into yourself and eat it, what good is it to you, right? And so he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. If you do not abide in Christ and his word, there is no life in you. A dead man can only do one thing, and that's to remain dead, right? Dead man can only do one thing. He can stink, rot, and remain dead. And so dead men have no life in them. Physically, you can be the most, quote-unquote, happiest person in the world and still spiritually be dead in your sins. And so almost like a zombie. Like, I don't know if you guys watch The Walking Dead. I used to. I need to get caught up. I haven't watched Walking Dead in so long. But zombies, they're alive, but they're dead at the same time. In the same way, a person that's born dead in sin, until they get saved, they're like a zombie. Physically, they're alive, but spiritually, there's no life in them. And so verse 65, Jesus, he kind of heightens what he said on verse 64 when he says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws. So if Jesus wasn't clear then, he even brings more out of that verse in verse 65. Well, let me let me read verse 63 first. And then I'll read verse 65. Jesus says in verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. And then in verse 65, he says, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me Unless it has been granted him from the Father. No one can come to Christ unless the Father grants permission to come to Jesus. Why? Because we're all born dead in sin. So, Jesus is clearly teaching this. He's clearly teaching this. John 10. Go over to John 10, uh, verse 26. John 10, verse 26. Let's look at this. The John 10, verse 26. Jesus says, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. And so in Bible times, you guys know the illustration that Jesus is talking about. And so the shepherd, he will walk up to the uh, the gate where the sheep were, and there will be a whole bunch of sheep inside his gate. And so the shepherd, he will call out by name his sheep. And so he would say, David, Paul, Peter, James. And so they, um, the shepherd's sheep would come to him because they know his voice, but because also they're his sheep. And so the other sheep wouldn't come because they aren't his sheep. But his sheep, his children, his sheep would come to him because they belong to him. Now listen to this. But you do not belong, you do not believe because you're not my sheep. So people who aren't God's sheep, they are the devil's sheep. They are born into sin, born into the kingdom of darkness. And so Verse 29, my father who has given them to me 
is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch him out of my father's hand. And so that goes hand in hand with verse 26. John 15. The reason why I'm spending so much time on this one because this one, it leads to the other four. If you can understand this one clearly, you can understand the other four points of Tulip. And so I'm focusing a lot of my time on this one because it's so important. Because again, this is the foundation. It's the same with the gospel. Unless a person unless a person truly understands how depraved and how much uh how wicked our soul and our being has become, they can never really be saved because what's the point of needing a savior if you think you're already self righteous, right? Just like the Pharisees, they thought they didn't need Christ because they thought by keeping the law, they could be righteous, but you need to understand total depravity. You need to get some of this in your soul. You need to be doing some research and understanding, am I truly saved? Do I really understand how wicked and depraved I am apart from Christ? So let's look. John 15, verse 16. John 15, verse 16. Jesus says to his apostles, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you will go and bear fruit and that you will your fruit will remain so that whatever you may ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Listen, is you did not choose me, but I chose you. Why? Because we can't choose God on our own. The apostles did not choose Christ. Christ chose them before the foundation of the world. We'll get into that in a little bit. But again, dead men can only do one thing. Stink, rot, and remain dead. In the same way, a zombie, though he's alive, quote unquote, he's really dead. In the same way, a person can be physically alive and spiritually in the heart as dead as can all be. And in the same way, we're all born in this state of deadness, cut off from the kingdom of God, cut off from the things of God, rejecting God, born into sin. So David, he says, the most godless man in the Bible, he says in Psalms 51 verse 5, Yes, I was born a sinner from the moment my mother conceived me. So what he's saying is the moment he was birthed into this world, pregnant in his mother's womb, he was already a sinner. Again, he wasn't born out of his mother's womb and sinned one time and became a sinner, but rather he's a sinner. That's why he sins. And so Jesus taught this. John 17, 2. I'm going to finish us off soon. John 17, 2. Well, not John 17, 2. Uh, let me see. Let me see, guys. Mm. But yeah, so that's that. Um, I got ahead of myself, y'all. I got ahead of myself. Let me go back. I was at the wrong. <laughs> that was the wrong point, y'all. Let me see if I still can find it. Yeah. So John 8. Let's go back to John 8 real quick. John 8. John 8, verse 43, guys. John 8, verse 43. I was all the way to a whole other point. John 8, verse 43. So he was talking to these Jews. And so that's the context. Jesus talking to some unbelieving Jews. He says, why do you not understand what I'm saying? Kind of a rhetorical question because he already knew. 
he gives the answer. He says, it is because you cannot hear my word. Then he says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and is not standing the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he's a liar and the father lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. And so the reason why people cannot understand the gospel, or even if you're sharing the gospel with them, the reason why they don't get it is because they cannot hear it. They don't understand what you're saying because they are spiritually blind, spiritually deaf. Dead men can only remain dead. I've never went to the funeral and seen that person in that casket get out and walk away. Unless we're talking about a video game or a TV, right? But people who are dead, they can't come back to life. In the same way, this is a state all of us are born into. And so let's speed through the rest of these real quick because it's already been like 30 minutes. Y'all forgive me. <laughs> number uh, number two, unconditional election. So what is that? And so before I start, unconditional election is talking about predestination. And so that's kind of a common myth. Or not even a myth, but like a misconception about the word predestination. And so all Bible-believing Christians all affirm some type of predestination. But the argument that's kind of in, that we face today is what that meaning of predestination is. And so you have two ways. Many say that God predestined us because of a future choice that he foresaw in us that we would do. So, for example, um, you have, let's say, God... He's all knowing. So he foreknew, he foreknew that you, the Christian, would pick him in the future. That's why he chose you to be saved. But biblically, that's not what we're seeing. That's not what we're taught in the Bible. Biblically, the word predestined is a God's sovereign act of election. And so unconditional election, predestination is like God preordaining something to happen before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians 1. And so let's look at unconditional election. Yes, let's look at it real quick. Um, John Calvin, he seemed to like foresee that there would be people like in the future that would like be arguing that. I think the person who um, brought about Arminianism, uh, I think his name was Jacob Arminius. He was kind of doing, teaching that right there, that God foresaw something in us. And that's why he chose us. And so Calvin, foreseeing this in the future, he wrote, Something known as the Christian Institutes of basically um, a lot of important things in the Christian faith. He taught about these things in his institutes. And so you definitely should go read Calvin's Institutes. I probably butchered the name, but it's definitely a pretty good material in there. And so Calvin, he writes, By thus covering election with a veil of foreknowledge, they not only obscure, but before Let me go home. Wrong one, wrong one. My bad, y'all. Let me not quote that. Here we go. Calvin contests that this view of foreknowledge makes man God's co-worker in salvation. It implies that election is ratified only by man's consent. This is to make the grave as an heirs because it suggests that man's will is superior to God's plan. Or at the very least implies God's plan is partial dependent on man. And so... By refuting this, he says that um, this plan was founded upon his freely given mercy without regard to human worth. And so that's Calvin Institute, chapter three. You can go look at that. And so another quote from Calvin, he says, all men 
are not created for the same end, but some are foreordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation. So according, according as every man was created for the one end or to the other, we say he was elected that this that this is predestination. And so that's also in Calvary's Institute, uh, book three, chapter 21, section one. And so what is unconditional election? Unconditional election is based on the father from the beginning of the foundation of the entire world before anybody was born. Angels, whatever you want to say, before the foundational world, God has elected for himself a people that will be saved. This is um, in the reform world. We teach, this will be next episode, what is called covenant theology. And so one of those covenants is called the covenant of redemption. And so it's based like a promise within the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that God would redeem a people for himself. And so here, this is what we're talking about. This is unconditional election. And God did, in fact, redeem a people for himself. And he's an all elect of God, whom he chose not because of a, a foreknowledge that he had that you would pick him, but he chose you because you couldn't pick him. And so he chose you for his own pleasures. Not because of anything good in you, Romans 9, but simply that God's purpose of election may continue. So what did Jesus, what did Jesus say about this teaching, right? I'm sure that's what you guys are probably dying to hear. So let's go to John 3, verse 8. John 3, verse 8. Let me start in verse five to give you guys like a little context so you guys know. Uh, Jesus answered, truly, truly, to Nicodemus, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is everyone who was born of the spirit. So think about this. When, when you walk outside, you feel it right, but you can't see it. And you also don't have any idea of what direction it comes from. In the same way, God's purpose of election is like that. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. This is God's um, sovereign act of election. He chooses by his own glory and pleasures to bring people mercy and grace by his own choice and arbitrary will. He doesn't owe salvation to anybody. Why would God owe you, a dead man, today, salvation? Yes, God is holy, and yes, we know God is love, but God doesn't owe us anything. Anything good that God does for us is because of his own pleasure. Because we exist for God's glory, not the other way around. It's not that God exists for us. I think it's a, it's a verse in Psalms that says, You're, you, thought, you thought I was just like you. And so many people... That's the sin that we commit daily. It's idolatry. We think God is just like us. But God is the creator of the entire world. He is holy. He deserves to be selfish because all things are made by him and for him. You are not God or we're not little gods. God is the only one and true living God. That's why in the Bible, when you look in the Old Testament, it says the Lord our God because the people of Israel, the Jews, they will be worshiping these false idol gods, a god of water, a god of land, a god of this. And so the Lord, our God, is Yahweh. He is I am. He's the one true God. And so God owes nobody anything. And so when God chooses people for salvation, he can do this because he's God. 
Who are we to argue with God, right? A dead man only deserves punishment. And so John 6, verse 37, let's look at that. We're still on unconditional election. Let me see how much time I got. Okay, I'm trying to wrap up in a little bit. Still got two more to cover, y'all. Lord, I think we got three more. We're going to hurry up, though. John 6, verse 37. Let's go find that passage real quick. Again, I'm reading for the New American Standard Bible, my favorite Bible. I like the um, ESV. I like the KJV sometimes as well. Even though we don't speak like that no more, the D's and the Dow's. But it's still good to kind of do research and kind of learn for myself what does the text really say. I think, too, um, the KJV and the uh, the NASB are the most closely related to the Greek that we have. And so that could be another podcast to the Texas Receptus and the Majority Text. Maybe we'll talk about which, which one is more um, closer to the Greek. But John 6, verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And so, all that the Father gives to me, who are these people? These are the elect of God. God has chosen these people to be saved before the foundation of the world, not because of a choice you would make, because of God's purpose of election. There's nothing good in this. We've already established that again. So think about this. If we're born dead in sin, how can anybody get to heaven? Because we've already established Jesus saying that dead men have, have no life in them. They need to be born again. And so the reason why people are able to get to heaven is because God does, in fact, choose to save people. He doesn't leave people in their sins. Not all, at least. And so uh, let's look at one more passage. I have several passages from the book of John. Um, I give you these um, passages so you can do them on your you can look at them on your own time. Just pause the podcast and go look at them because I'm not going to be able to cover all of them. But. Let me give you these, and you're going to look at your own time. So John 3, verse 8, John 6, verse 37 and 39, John 10, verse 26 and 29, John 15 and 16, uh, John chapter 15, verse 16, John 17, 2, 6, and 24. And so definitely go look at those passages. Um, Jesus Christ, eternal son of God, he's teaching our conditional election. And so the next one. Limited atonement. And so think about this. If mankind by nature is born in a state, alienated from the things of God, born into sin, born with the free will corrupted to only choose sin and not God, born rejecting God, born, as David says, into sin. And um, how can a dead man get to heaven, right? And so we've established that God, he does, in fact, choose to save. But we know all throughout the Bible Everybody is not going to heaven. Many people believe that everybody goes to heaven. And that's what's called universalism. And that's not biblical at all. Jesus did not die for everybody. He only died for those who put their trust in him. John three sixteen For God so the world that he gave his own son, that whoever believes in him will not perish. And so the common myth is that you can go to heaven not believing in him. But that's not true. And so... Limited atonement. It's a term that's used to summarize what the Bible teaches about the purpose for Christ's death on the cross and what his life, death, and um, resurrection were accomplished, I should say. Um, so some people, 
they prefer to use the term particular redemption, definite redemption, uh, actual atonement, and I think uh, intentional atonement. So because they like the word better. And so we have what is called like a three-point Calvinist or a four-point Calvinist and a five-point Calvinist. Of course, if you're reformed, you are a five-point Calvinist because you believe in all five of these because they're right out of the Bible, right? You as a Christian, you should be a five-point Calvinist because this is the gospel. We are saved by what is known as tulip. Of course, the gospel is who Jesus is and what he accomplished. But if you dive deeper into that, tulip is the gospel. And so limited atonement is a gospel. And so I, I like what is known as um, actual atonement or a definite atonement. Christ is de Christ's death was a legitimate definite atonement. No blood on the cross was um, wasted. Christ didn't die on a possibility that people would come to him, but he died on the real chance that people would be saved. And these people that be saved are the elect people of God that God predestined to be saved before the foundation of the entire world. Ephesians 1 verse 4. And so Christ's death, his blood that was shed was not in vain. So the doctrine of limited atonement, it affirms that the Bible teaches Christ's atoning work on the cross was done with a definite purpose. So like I said, I like the word definite atonement better than limited atonement, but they mean the same thing, guys. Christ died to redeem a people from God, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Not that Christ would save everybody from every tribe, tongue, and nation, but that Christ died for people of all tribes, tongue, and nation. And so John Calvin, he says in his institutes about... um. Which one are we on? <laughs> Limited atonement. My, my bad, guys. Limited atonement. So John Calvin says, um, Where from it comes about that the whole world does not belong to its creator, except that grace rescues from God's curse and wrath and eternal death a limited number who would otherwise perish. But the word itself is left to its own destruction to which has been destined. Meanwhile, although Christ interposes himself as mediator, he claims for himself in common with the Father, the right to choose. I am not speaking, he says, of all I know whom I have chosen. And then Calvin quotes John 13, verse 18, about that phrase he just said. Then Calvin says, If anyone asks whence it has been chosen them, he replies another passage from the world, John 15, verse 19, he quotes, which he excludes from his prayers when he commands his disciples to the Father, John 17, verse 9. John 17, verse 9. Then finally he says, This we must believe when he declares that he knows whom he has chosen. He denotes in his human genius a particular species distinguished not by the quality of his virtues, but by heaven, heavenly decree itself. And so that's John Calvin and his institutes about limited atonement or definite atonement. And so what does the Bible actually say about definite atonement or limited atonement? What did Jesus say about definite atonement and so let's look john chapter 10 verse 11 and so jesus he actually tells us who he dies for in this passage so the debate should stop right here jesus says who he dies for john 10 verse 11 i am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep let me let me read this one more time i am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
One more time. Maybe somebody didn't hear me. Jesus talking. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Who are the sheep? The sheep are God's sheep. Not the sheep over there. Remember the, the illustration I gave you guys? I said, the shepherd will go to the gate and there'll be plenty of sheep inside this gate. And the shepherd will call David, Peter, James, come here. And the sheep would know the shepherd's voice because these are his sheep. But notice how those other sheep over there wouldn't come to wouldn't come to the shepherd because they don't belong to the shepherd. In the same way, Christ he defines his own death. He says, I lay my life down for my sheep. Not those sheep over there, but for these sheep, his sheep. So Christ he lays down his life for his sheep and not all sheep. John 10 verse 15. Even as the father knows me, I know the father and I lay my life down for the sheep. So these sheep, of course, are the elect people of God, not those sheep over there, but these sheep. Imagine, let me put it in a more modern view. Imagine if you go, if you're a parent and you have four children and you go to pick them up from school and you go to the classroom and you tell the teacher, hey, can you tell David, Peter, Paul, James, and Mary to come here? That's five, but oh well. <laughs> you, you basically call out your children's name. And so the rest of the children inside the classroom don't come because they don't belong to that parent. That parent only has those specific children. In the same way, Christ, he has his specific children. His sheep, the father gave him, will come to him. These are his sheep. And Christ says, I died for these sheep, not those sheep, but these sheep. <laughs> I think I've beaten the, bullet, beaten the horse enough, right? So, uh, let's see. Uh, I think Christ, he also tells us again in John 6, verse 37. Let me check the time. Okay, we got about 10, 15 minutes. I got to hurry up, y'all. John 6, verse 37. Let's go to that real quick. I think it's that, that verse I quoted earlier too early. But John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives him are the sheep. The sheep will come to him because Jesus knows them by name. And the sheep knows the shepherd's voice. And so, Christ he defines his own atonement and he died. He lays his life down for the sheep. And so Christ, he did not die for everybody all over the world because he tells us here that he died for his sheep. One more passage and I kind of explain one last thing. We got to hurry up and move to irresistible grace. So last passage, John 17, verse nine. In the prayer before Christ dies, he says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on the behalf of the world but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I ask on their on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. Listen to this, for they are yours. The sheep are God the Father's. God the Father gave the sheep to the to Jesus, and Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. So again, Christ's death it's not a possibility that people will come to him, but it's an actual definite atonement. His blood was not shed on the cross because 
in theology, we teach this word called justification by faith. So justification means to be justified in the sight of God. How? Because the gospel. The gospel says Christ, he pays a price for all our past sins, our present sins, and our future sins. And he gives us a foreign righteousness or an alien righteousness. And we are ju justified in the sight of God because of what Christ did and his good works. Not because of our works, but because of Christ's works. That's the gospel. But again, Christ paid for all our past sins, future sins, and present sins. He justified. The word justified in God's eyes because of what Christ did. And so if Christ died for the world, how are people going to hell? Because Christ died for all sins, even unbelief. Because at one point in time, we all had unbelief in us, right? We were born totally depraved, rejecting the gospel and hating God. And so Christ, he paid the price for unbelief. And unbelief is a sin. Sin is transgression against the law. And we all broke that law. We all sinned and had unbelief in our hearts. But Christ paid the price for that sin for those in Christ. And so people who are in hell are unbelievers, right? God throws unbelievers in the hell. And we all at one point in time were unbelievers. So why are those unbelievers in hell if Christ paid the price for the sins of the entire world? It doesn't make sense, right? Because Christ has a definite atonement and a definite plan that God the Father gave to him, that he submitted to, that he would lay down his life for his sheep. So that's limited atonement. Christ did not die for all, but for his sheep. Because the fact that the Bible teaches what is known as justification by faith. So definitely go read Romans 8. I think it's verse 28 to 32. And you'll see what I'm talking about. Irresistible grace. This is probably one of the most controversial. Um, this one and Lemon's Atonement are probably the most controversial um, points of Calvinism or points of Tulip. Because people reject um, these two things. And so... When you speak of three-point Calvinists, people usually reject limited atonement and this one right here. Or sometimes people hold to this one but reject limited atonement. Or they hold to limited atonement but reject irresistible grace. And so, what is irresistible grace? So, historically and traditionally, the reform, the reform view, um, reformers have always taught that regeneration precedes faith. And we speak of regeneration being monogistic. It basically means the uh, act of God alone. So um, it basically means um, God's divine, I guess we could say, God's divine operation is solely an act of God alone, not of both God and man. That's synergistic, but simply God alone. And so God alone, he, um, he does regeneration, then faith, because he changes our heart first. And then we're able to accept the gospel. And so the uh, illustration that some people use, they say, God, he created He created us. He brought us into existence. We didn't help him. It was only his sovereign work alone that he created us, right? Biologi biologically. Likewise, um, in the same way, this is the same way we're saved. It's an act of God alone, not of both God and man that we save ourselves, but simply God alone who saves us. And so... When people say, I gave my life to Christ, biblically, that's not true because God, he's the one that produces his faith because regeneration precedes faith. 
it produces faith. And so let's dive into irresistible grace. So for starters, before I even define the definition of irresistible grace, I should say that when we say irresistible, we don't mean that we can't resist God's grace because we were already taught that we all were born dead in sin doing this, right? And so Stephen in Acts 7, he's, he told the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin, he says, like, you stiff-necked people, you, why do you always resist the grace of God? And so it's possible to resist God's grace. And so the Baptist Confession of Faith in chapter 10 is section 2 on effectual calling. It says, the effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature, being wholly passive therein, being dead in sin and trespasses until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. He is thereby enabled to answer this call and embrace the grace offered in conveying it, and that by no less power than himself. And so that's the London's Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 10 of Effectual Calling, um, section 2. So we'll go look at that. Just type up um, the Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 10, section 2, and you will find that. Calvin, he says, in his Institutes, he says, quote, The statement amounts to this, that we ought not to wonder if many refuse to embrace the gospel, because no man will ever of himself be able to come to Christ, but God must first approach him by his spirit, and hence it follows that all are not drawn but that God bestows his grace on those whom he has elected. True, indeed, as the kind of drawing is not violent, so as to compel men by external force, but still is a powerful impulse of the Holy Spirit, which makes men willing who formerly were unwilling to come to the cross. End quote. Jesus, John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. This drawing right here is what is known as an effectual call. We can resist the grace of God. We do it every day. But no one can resist the effectual call of God. It's the actual saving faith that God produces in us. No one can resist it. And so I'm going to give you guys a couple passages because we're running out of time. Uh, John 6, 44, James 2, uh, in the Greek word here, talks about drawing as being translated into drag. We see the same word used in Acts 16 and James 2. So we'll look at that. Uh, John 6, verse 63, 65, John 8, verse 47, and John 10, verse 3, all speak of what is known as irresistible grace. And again, it's the effectual call of God. Some reformers or Calvinists have translated not to be irresistible grace, but now it's the effectual call of God. And so no one can resist God's effectual call. Because think about it. God removes our heart of stone gives us a heart of, of life. Now we can understand Christ and who he is and what he accomplished and the gospel itself. But prior to that, we had no idea who Jesus was and we hated God. But for once in our life, we finally understand who Christ is and how beautiful the gospel is. And so I've never known somebody not want to be saved. We all want to be saved, right? I hope so, right? <laughs> so I'm pretty sure you guys are all more happy now that you're saved versus before, right? And so God just changes our heart. The last one, perseverance of the saints. And so, run out of time. Perseverance of the saints is based on that saying, one save, always save. This is definitely true. Once you're a believer in Christ, you're always saved. You cannot lose your salvation because, again, 
to be justified in God the Father's eyes by faith is to say that Christ, he paid the price for all your past sins, present sins, and future sins that you haven't committed yet, that God knows you're going to commit. Christ died for all those sins. By no means does this excuse your sin or allows you to sin freely because if you do that, you're not really a child of God. To be a child of God, God gives you his heart, which means you hate sin, right? When you repent it, you repent it from your sin. You turn from loving it to hating it. You divorced it and married Christ. And so when Christ died for our sins, we don't want to displease the one who we love, right? And so persevering in the saints, it teaches that once saved, always saved. Um, all those whom, whom the Father has given the Son will come to Jesus and never lose their salvation. Once a person is saved, they will always be saved. And God will see to himself no sin, uh, no angel, nor death. I think Paul says that no sin or angel or death can separate us from uh, the love of God. And so a born-again believer can never be separated from the love of God because Christ, he actually, in fact, paid the price. So his death was a definite atonement. God preordained or elected people for himself before the foundation of the world. And uh, you cannot lose the salvation. When you get saved, it's like God seals you with a stamp that you're his child. Nothing can snatch you from it, not even the devil, because this is a, a plan that God has done before the foundation of the world. How can the devil snatch you away from um, God the Father? And so here are the I don't have time to cover all the passages, but here are the passages. You can pause the podcast and take them, write them down or go look at these in the Bible. These are all from the mouth of Jesus. He says, John 6, verse 35, 39, 40, 47, and 50. So John 6, 35, 39, 40, 47, and 50. John 8, verse 31. John 8, verse 31. John 10, verse 27 through 29. John 10, verse 27 and 29. And John 17, verse 11, 12, and 24. And so, thank you guys for tuning in again. So, this was, again, the first episode of Reformed Theology. Reformed Theology, three C's, five solos, and today... We covered the first C of what it means to be reformed. Stay tuned.